Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's the Stick to Syracuse podcast. My name is Brent Axe. We are so glad that you are here today. We've got a great show lined up for you. What will be our final episode in this format, as we'll explain here shortly, Sean Kirst, longtime Syracuse columnist, current Buffalo News columnist, author of many books, including The Soul of Syracuse. It'll be great to catch up with Sean, hear what he's been up to, and tell some great stories about the town he still loves, pure to his heart, Syracuse, New York. Bob Searing, Curator Bob, our friend from the Onondaga Historical Association. We're going to discuss something really cool, a book about Teddy Roosevelt and his time spent on trial in Syracuse, New York, and an event that you can go to to meet the author of that book. You may have heard of him, Dan Abrams. Plus, one final sound scene with our friend Kathleen Mason from K-Mace Productions sits down with Harmonic Dirt. So yes, we are changing the format to this podcast. We were the Syracuse Sports Podcast for 49 episodes prior to Stick to Syracuse. It's been an amazing adventure, and I'm going to reflect a little bit at the end of this podcast on what we've been able to do through 23 episodes. But starting in mid-August, this podcast is going to return to an all-sports format, the Syracuse Sports Podcast. I'm excited about some of the guests we already have lined up, getting back in depth about what is the most anticipated season in the history of Syracuse football, Syracuse basketball, and all the great sports stories that we can tell here in central New York. So yes, if you are subscribed on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, or wherever you get this podcast, just know that starting in mid-August, when it arrives, wherever you listen to your podcasts, we will be back in an all-sports format renamed the Syracuse Sports Podcast. But what do you say? We give it one last run here on Stick to Syracuse. Just Joe, fire it up. Behind SU Sports, snowstorm weather we post. Stick to Syracuse today. Some potatoes, high top dogs, dynasty barbecue all year long. Stick to Syracuse today. It's raining. Ladies and gentlemen, your host of Stick to Syracuse, Brett X. You know him, you love him. He is, of course, former Syracuse.com and post-standard columnist, the author of many books, including The Soul of Central New York. Now with the Buffalo news, there there is almost nobody that knows that route from Syracuse to Buffalo on the throughway better than this I, guy right here. I actually know, and this is not an exaggeration, I know many of the clerks at like the Tim Hortons, <laughs> by, by, they recognize me. You know? <laughs> You're a regular now. Yeah, I am a regular. It's unbelievable. What's that life been like for you, Sean? I mean, we miss you here, but... We don't because you're still home a lot. You're making that commute back and forth, Syracuse <laughs> to weekend. Buffalo. You're you're everywhere, man. You're you're Mister like total Central Western New York now. Yeah, yeah, that's in Central Western New York because that that's more us than upstate, right? That, right. That's uh, yeah. Right. But um, in, and in Buffalo, and I love this in Buffalo. Every time I use, I'll say upstate New York. People are oh, we're not upstate New York. We're Western New York. Even though if you look at a map. You are upstate. New yeah. York. A lot of but, pride there. They also uh, say pop for, instead of soda, but that's a whole right. different thing. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. But uh yeah, they're fiercely loyal. But but um you know, my wife is is teaching school here and I, I come back, it's usually a routine of uh you know, Monday to Friday or what if if every now and then if something's going on on a weekend that you know, I'll, I'll be down there for, for a couple of straight weeks. But typically it's like sort of a Monday to Friday deal. I got a tiny apartment and uh 
that's where I am during the week, and then I'm home on weekends. It's like you're an old college student again. Exactly. You know, yeah. in the in the apartment, then coming home for the weekend, get home cooking, get your laundry done, get all that stuff. Yeah, right? but I'm doing that laundry myself. <laughs> you believe me? But what what an opportunity too, because I know you know you're a Western New York boy. We talked so much Bills football when we were working together, and that was always in your heart. Syracuse is your adopted hometown. You wrote about it for so long, told so many great stories. I mean, how fortunate do you feel to be able to now tell the stories? of your hometown in, in Buffalo in Western New York. It is. Um, I was thinking about this this morning and, and, and I really do. Con- I love that Western central New York. I, I, I mean, it's almost like I consider my home sort of a larger, I, I would never say one or the other with Buffalo and Syracuse. I raised my kids here and, and, and I love this place. And when, when I come here, I'm totally here. And when I'm in Buffalo, I'm totally in Buffalo, but, but Brenda, without getting into any of, you know, violin stuff here. My parents were both orphans. And since I've gone back to Buffalo and my dad had 15 siblings, 14 siblings, and it was dysfunctional. And since I've been back in Buffalo, I've met three first cousins I didn't know. I've found my grandmother's grave. I mean, there's just been this incredible sort of stuff that's happened to me that I almost feel like was meant to be. I was going to say, it's almost meant to be. And you're telling the stories of many people in, in Western New York and getting to do what you do and do what you love. But it feels like almost a personal journey. Yeah, way too. You, was draw, you were drawn there for whatever reasons you were. Yeah, and 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 many times, and this is I I am, and maybe this is just because of my focus, very much like your focus. I mean, you've you've got this same sense of connection to both places, but um, there are so many. It's unbelievable how many times there's overlap where somebody has lived in Syracuse or gone to school in one. It's it's incredible. How have you found that? Because I've seen a few stories where there's been natural connections there oh, between yeah. Western and Syracuse, New York. What are some of those stories that you know brought brought them together that you've had the opportunity to work on? Well, one I worked on recently that that was uh, you know especially moving it was a young guy named Connor Linsky who was who was victim of a hit and run at Darien Lake. I don't know if you remember that he was, but um, his older brother, this wonderful kid, he's studying to be a doctor, and his older brother is at uh, Upstate, and, and both he and Connor had this uh, affinity for rural medicine. And, you know, this was a kid who would have done something unbelievable with his life. And, and uh, But these deep Syracuse connections on top of, on top of you know, all of this happening in Buffalo. So, so there's been a lot of stories like that where things just naturally overlap. The sense of transition and, and, you know, Carrier and Bethlehem Steel and, 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 and the sort of industrial, there still was an enormous working class experience. And, and, and you know, there's the whole northeastern transition in, in, in cities and, and you, know, you know, the African-American experience in Buffalo, very similar to the African-American experience in Syracuse. And, 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 you know, the Six Nations, right? I did a column this week on the Skyway, which was, yeah, you know, the Skyway and, and uh, not an exact comparison to the 81 but there's certain similarities but but you know that that in 1955 three people died building it including uh you know a mohawk and a seneca working in high steel and 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 you know so much so much overlap between so many thematics yeah oran lyons is is uh, people forget this oran drove to buffalo for 38 years to teach at the university of buffalo which i have yeah, you know, you think about, you know, I'm sitting here whining about doing that drive for three years. Oren did it for 38. Wow. You know, and 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 was in that, I think he was in charge. Well, he wasn't in charge because John Mohawk was there, but he was integral to their Native American Studies program. And so, you know, this is, uh, as you have, those uh, those tire treads have been worn before me. 
Yes. Uh, I, all the clerks at all the rest stops knew him very well, too, <laughs> exactly. I'm sure. Sean, tell me about your process. I'm just curious how you find the stories that you write. In 2019, what's what's that process? Like, you're laughing, because I know how these things happen sometimes, but I want you to tell our listeners how these things come together. I still love the stories that leave you know, I, that leave me with a sense of marvel or wonder, and, and hopefully that conveys to readers as well. But I did a column, I did a column last week at Bell Aerospace, which was in Niagara Falls, and, and it's hard to remember now, but in the 50s and 60s and 70s were cutting-edge um, space technology. And, and, and it turns out this was something that just gave me the chills. The biggest issue when these guys go to the moon is not getting them there because as awesome as that sounds and as much as that was moving – it's they had no clue once that lunar lander went down if they could get it off. And, and, and Nixon had a speech written in which he said, these guys are stranded there. There's nothing we can do. I mean, it, it gives you the chills. They were ready. Um, what's his name? Collins had practiced going home by himself. So they, they, were, they were, you know, I don't want to say they were frightened because those guys were all, you know, they, they, they were all brass. But, 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 you know, they were certainly worried that they couldn't get the Armstrong and Aldrin off the moon. And it turns out that the engine on the lunar lander that, that lifted the thing up was made in Niagara Falls. Wow. And, and so all those guys, what they were worried about is that when that thing came down, if you remember, Armstrong had to land it manually. So they were afraid that the jarring when it landed would knock the engine off. And, and to all these workers at the Bell Aerospace plant or Bell Aerosystems, the moment on the moon that was so dramatic was when it lifted up because they, they got them off there. And so so – I, I start beginning to kind of understand this story as I'm working on it, but I cannot find, and this is like, a, you know, I, I'm sure you're thinking I'm, I'm going to tell some wonderful story about my intuitive reporting skills. So I'm working on this. I'm thinking, damn it, I got to find one old guy who, uh, you know, who worked on this thing. And, you know, like a week and a half before the moon, before the anniversary, I get an email from a minister at Amherst who says, hey, you know, I got an old guy here who worked on the belly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, and the guy was unbelievable. Yeah, that's his, great. He was in Houston. He knew Armstrong. He was like, yeah, you know. So uh, it, it's all karma, right? Look, I I think this is what you have the strongest knack for. You find these stories, these connections, and you just said it—that sense of awe, that sense of wonder—that you are still left with. I could just see it in your eyes talking about it right here. When you find people like this, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, but. I think you find people that have stories they want to tell. They just never had the opportunity to do it maybe on, on a broader scale, like in a newspaper or in a media sense like that. How many people have you found like that that are just like, oh, boy, where have you been? I got stories for you, man. Well, well I think the uh, the thing that always gets to me, and, and okay, I, I mean, I'm old enough to start saying these things now without uh, – Sounding ridiculous. If I sound ridiculous, I don't care anymore because I'm, I'm old enough to say it. <laughs> I can't wait till I get to that point. Yeah, you're a long ways from that. Point. But um, there's certain things you got to believe it's meant to be, and and, and I, I don't I don't just I always talk about the organism of a story, Brent, and, and that's the idea that the 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 most dangerous and destructive thing you could ever do would be to think that I'm making this happen. You're a piece in that chain I, I mean the fact that what mattered is that ruby was there that she had the story that she felt that she felt there was something important to tell and she was waiting for the vehicle to tell it right and and so we're all just we're all just part of that chain and 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 the incredible feeling is is to be able to be feel like you're slipping the the link in there and helping to make it happen so that 
that, uh, that yeah, you know, it, that that's the that's the that, there's no feeling in your gut like when all those all those things just fall together and it and you feel like man and this story should be told. That's the you know. Sean. Inevitably, you and I will circle back and talk sports. Oh yeah, and inevitably, you and I will talk some Buffalo Bills football. And that's what I'm curious about. You, you worked here. You still live here, of course, and you know the pride that Syracuse University sports brings to this area, particularly oh, yeah. basketball. But now, the, but now the football team has come around, and people are excited yeah, that was about something. both. Yeah. In Buffalo, the Bills made that playoff run a couple of years ago, and that might as well have been a Super Bowl run because Bills fans have been waiting a long time for that. And it came out of nowhere. And it came out of absolute nowhere, yeah. exactly. The Sabres, frankly, have been awful the past uh, few years. And, and, and the most heartbreaking thing was, and even people that I know who, who you know, know the Sabres inside out and really know hockey, thought that something had changed. During the winning streak in December, there was really a belief that, hey, these guys, I heard this so many times, they're for real. And, and they're so for real, there. that's their moment. And it was painful when, when that didn't come to be. Now, of course, despite that, they keep showing up. Oh, yeah. And Buffalo fans are as passionate as they come in either sport across the country. So I guess that circles back to something we brought up earlier about the similarities about how – these particular towns are passionate about their sports. How can you best kind of encapsulate that? How Bills fans, how Sabres fans are just, sports is just part of life in Western New York. It's not something you do to escape life. It's part of life. The greatest sports quote I ever, I think that this is one of these, I, I, the great, one of the greatest sports quotes I ever heard in 1990. I, 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 I wasn't even a columnist yet, Brent. I was, I was a GA reporter for the Post Standard and, and the Bills were about to go to their first Super Bowl. And, and uh, the paper said, go on, go on down and, and just do a piece on it, which was a joy for me, right? And, and, and uh, you know, I went to this barbershop in Jefferson Avenue where the players at that time would still drive into the city to get their hair cut and, and just went to a lot of places I remembered from being a kid. And, but I, I went to Lackawanna, and this is what I, I just, you know, I, I feel so badly like that my kids haven't ever seen this. And, you know, that idea that it felt like Christmas. You remember that in January when they'd be on a playoff run and all the houses with the flags and just that it actually shortened the winter, right? And, which, and Syracuse knows that in March, right? Exactly. It's the same thing. And and, and uh, I remember I talked to this guy who lived in this little bungalow and greatest quote about being a fan I, I've ever heard because I said to him, I said to him, uh, so if the Bills win the Super Bowl, would it change your life? Guy says to me, "It wouldn't change my life. It would change my insides." Wow, there it is, right? And and we know that's that, incredible. That's it's the best quote ever about it. And and I came back and I used that when SU won it because I that was the thing, right? And and this town, even though it's been a while, people want it again. It's never been exactly the same no. because they've had it. They they've known that feeling, and and so that I wish that for Buffalo so deeply. And 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 it's always a little bit in flux because. Even though, like even right now, there's that little bit of anxiety about the stadium and would the NFL possibly, you know, job us on this? And, 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 and you know, you like to think that everything's secure, everything's good, but there's always, there's always concern, right? Yeah, you know, even, I mean, you know, big-time cities can lose their team. So it's, it's there's still, until it happens, it ain't happened. <laughs> yeah. Sean, I have asked a number of guests on the show this question. I've been really waiting to ask you this because you're as qualified as anybody to answer it. And the question is this, what makes Syracuse Syracuse? 
I'm, I'm, I'm not hesitating. I'm, I'm really letting everything sift through my... Uh... Okay, I, I, I'll say this. Because every year I take a group of kids around, kids, young adults, for the Newhouse Gold Ring program and walk around downtown. And I, I just think that, that if, you had to, if you had to, if somebody, you know, put a can into my head and said, you, just what you just asked, what is the <laughs> one thing... It's it's the relationship with with the Onondagas. It's it's that that this city has such an intimate, unbelievably seminal relationship with the Six Nations. That 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 Onondaga Lake is their sacred lake. That this is Jerusalem to them. That that the reason the city exists in a way is because the Onondagas were here because of the because of the you know all the things that coalesced here and and and, and Onondaga Creek and Onondaga Lake and Onondaga County. And, and, and that there is, I don't know, and, and I won't go off, and there's a human story about it that's unbelievable, but I don't know if any, there aren't many communities, you know, on this continent that have the same essential relationship uh, with, with, you know, with a uh, uh, nation like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unbelievably, it can give you the chills when you really think about it, and, and I think that is the thing that, that, separates Syracuse from almost anybody. You know, you know, there's a million cool things about this town and a million things I love about it, and including, but in a way, this is all related, right? What's the most extraordinary, and I, we talk about this all the time, the most extraordinary thing about Syracuse, and I can tell you this with more authority now than ever before, is that it is, and, and people who laugh when I say this, don't see. It's stunningly beautiful. It is a Beautiful city. When you come into the, when you come in on the eighty one from from the south, and you see it nestled in that valley. When I come in, in the on the six ninety at night and see it above above the lake, it's a beautiful city. I mean, if if it's been screwed up, it's because we did it. And 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 um, what is it? It's a city of hills, and the Onondagas are the people of the hills. I, I mean, it's a, it's got this beautiful, mystical, romantic. And and also, there's a million inherent challenges in that. And what we what do we have to live up to, right? Because there's there's a responsibility that goes with that. So that's my that's my answer. Hey, what do you say? Have a happy day, cause we're living in Syracuse. One of my favorite people who joined us several times here on the Stick to Syracuse podcast was curator Bob, Bob Searing from the Onondaga Historical Association. And we caught up with Bob for one last conversation. And it's a fascinating one about Teddy Roosevelt and why once upon a time he was put on trial here in Syracuse, New York. Speaking of that, Dan Abrams and David Fisher, the authors of the book Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, The Courtroom Battle to Save His Legacy, will be signing copies of the book on Tuesday, August 13th at 2.30 p.m. at the Onondaga Historical Association. So we are back here in the fabulous office, Curator Bob, OHA, and we've got two fun things to discuss. One of them is there is a great book out there about Teddy Roosevelt, and the research was done here at the OHA. It's about a visit that Teddy Roosevelt made to Syracuse oh, yeah. back in the day. And it, this is a story you haven't heard. It is a fascinating It is. It's absolutely incredible. So Teddy Roosevelt, who this is 1915, three years removed from his last run as the pre, uh, running for president, um, splits the vote, gets Woodrow Wilson elected. He is arguably the most popular man in the United States, one of the most famous men in the world, and he is sued by a man named William Barnes, who is the former Republican Party boss of New York, for libel. 
um, Roosevelt had the audacity to come out in uh, private letters that were then made public saying that politics in New York were corrupt and that the two-party system was corrupt and that Barnes was the king sort of of corruption. Um, History and, repeats itself, oh, right? I mean, it, it <laughs> ripped from the headlines, my friend, ripped from the headlines, right? So so Roosevelt, you know, says these things in these letters, and, and one in one of my favorite parts of the trial, right, basically at the outset, Roosevelt, who is, of course, this larger-than-life, I mean, just a gregarious, gargantuan man, says, um, I do not deny that I wrote any of it, right? So he just stands his ground, because he, he made his career as a politician fighting corruption. Um, he did it as a governor. He did it as an assemblyman in New York. He did it, as obviously, as president. So he's, uh, he's consistent, to say the least. So a lot of the research for the book was done here at the OHA. Pretty much every photo you see in the book yeah. was taken from here. And I was reading some stuff down in the lobby before we started recording, Bob. There was a comparison made because that it, it's mentioned in the book too that that phrase "trial of the century" is used a lot. This truly was the trial of the century, not only at the time, but it, it held up for yeah. a long time. And maybe the OJ trial, but this was a major, major in 1915. But right. The book really gets into just how big of a deal this trial was, and how big of a deal Teddy was. At the time. It was, and you know, I mean, Syracuse sort of becomes the epicenter of of politics and the national media. I mean, every major national newspaper was here in Syracuse, camped out for the six week of the trial. They had daily reports coming from the trial, artist sketches people trying to snap photographs of Roosevelt coming and going from the from the courthouse um, which was you know sort of right back here over our back shoulder um, yeah so it was it was absolutely amazing you think if they had TV cameras it would have been 24-hour coverage all the time tweets Facebook updates I mean it would have been um, Trumpian in its media bombacity paint the picture for me Syracuse New York in 1950 it's a bustling place. It's the 30th largest city in the United States at the time. The population is around 100,000. Pretty much all of that action is in downtown. So all of the factories where most of the folks are working are in and around downtown. The canal is um, basically still there, but it's not necessarily being used. The Barge Canal is in the process of construction. Um, the railroads are barreling right down Washington Street. You've got the old New York Central Railroad Station, which Teddy came in on. Would have been right across the street from Kitty Hoynes, where the hotel is now. So this is a, a a major, major city, not just in the Northeast, but throughout the United States. Um, the football team was crushing it. Syracuse University is uh, nationally known. So the city was really sort of a, 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 of a hubbubaloo, and there were lots of things happening. And it was the center of the county courthouse, which is why Roosevelt was able to petition to get the, the trial moved. Um, originally, it was supposed to be in Albany, but Roosevelt didn't think he could get a fair trial in Albany because of the corruption that Barnes was able to manipulate. And I don't want to give away everything from the book, but this is a detail that you can read about here at the OHA and other places. So Teddy Roosevelt wins the trial, and was the jury wanted to award him some money for winning the trial, and Teddy took one dollar. Right, that's what he wanted. One dollar. And hearty handshakes for all the jurors. Ever the politician. He was a master. He was an absolute master. So, yeah, the, uh, the, they, they want to split the costs of the truck because it, the, 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 it had been $50,000 with the damages that Barnes was seeking. And, of course, so once you, if you sue somebody, you lose. You have to pay. So, yeah, and, and, and again, typical Roosevelt plays it like a T, plays it like a fiddle, sticks around while the jury is, uh, is uh, adjudicating its thing. Just uh, an incredible story. And, again, if you want to come down to the OHA, we've got uh, the book for sale. You can come down and check out some of the photographs that are in the book. Um, check out the transcript. We've got the entire transcript here. Um, the co-author, David Fisher, cool spent a lot Teddy of time. Teddy Roosevelt uh, teddy bear for the kids. There are some Teddy Roosevelt teddy bears, exactly. Very, very nice. Okay, brother, for a second. Absolutely. And the, the book is Theodore Roosevelt for the Defense, The Courtroom Battle to Save His Legacy. Dan Abrams from 
uh, live PD fame, and oh, yeah. I'm sure you've seen him on TV, oh, yeah. legal correspondent. And David Fisher was a Syracuse grad. Yeah, Syracuse grad. Actually, uh, surprisingly, was a roommate of the great Jim Beheim back in the day. Isn't that a something? Whole other story right there. It's amazing. How about that? So another big thing that's going on here this month, it's summertime, and you know we think of getting out to lakes. We get to getting near the water. And Skinny Atlas Lake, of course, is a destination all year round, but especially in the summertime. It's also the main water source yeah. for Syracuse and Central New York, and this is the anniversary of that. It is. It's, a, it's we're the, talking about the 125th anniversary of the water coming from Skinny Atlas Lake. We've got some of the best water in the United States here in the Salt City, um, and it's, uh, it's celebrating its birthday. It took four days. They turned it on on the 4th of July, 1894. It took um, four days for the water to make its way from Skinny Atlas to the 20 miles through the 30-foot, cast, 30-inch uh, cast iron tubes all the way down. What was that process like for them to determine this is where we need to get our water, the, the construction yeah. of it, everything that went into it? It's sort of a, a really fascinating story, Brent. So, you know, early settlers in Syracuse are getting water from natural springs. And you got to remember, we're the Salt City, so a lot of the water around here is pretty briny. There was actually the first spring was right down here in downtown um, where East Genesee Street meets Washington Street. So from there, they move, and as the city grows, you obviously need more water, so those natural springs were working. Um in the 1840s, Captain Oliver Teal, Teal Avenue, um, gets uh, the private contract to start the Syracuse Waterworks Company. And from there, it grows and grows and grows. And as the city continues to grow, they need more water. It, basically, in the 1860s, the idea is like, look, Skinny Atlas Lake is beautiful. It's close. The water is pristine. Why don't we do that? So in the 1880s, Mayor Kirk decides to put together a water commission to sort of figure out a feasibility study. There's multiple ideas. They're going to pull water from Oneida Lake. They're going to pull water from Lake Ontario. They're going to pull water from Onondaga Creek. The Salmon River, Skinny Atlas Lake wins. One of the things that really puts it over the edge is that Syracuse is below Skinny Atlas Lake. So it's about 400, 450 foot difference. So gravity does all the work. And the water was crystal clear. So um, the, they decide to do it. Uh, there's a big battle, though, because the canal is still a major thoroughfare in the 1890s. And the Canal Commission is concerned that taking water from Skinny Atlas Lake will actually mess with the canal water level. Because the, the New York State Canal Commission controlled all the water levels around. So what ends up happening is two years back and forth, back and forth. And finally, the assembly basically gives Syracuse the okay, and it takes place. It takes about a year and a half for them to dig this stuff out. We've got some amazing photographs of this being done. It's all, you've got to measure it. It's all hand tools, some minor steam shovels, but horses and just guys digging trenches. Like I said, 30-inch cast iron pipe, 19 miles uh, just an incredible engineering feat. And at one point, they call them the Alps. The pipes actually have to go up 224 feet and back down again to allow that gravity to go. But ever since then, we've had some of the best water. And like I said, it's one of these things I think like people just sort of, you take for granted. You go to your kitchen, you go to your bathroom, you turn the tap on, and water comes out. It's magic. Thanks to everybody who thought of that 125 years ago. Thank God for those folks. In February of 2016, Mike Gridley and Susan Coleman decided to experiment with a musical idea. On a cold February afternoon, Susan, a non-musician but die-hard fan, wrote what became the first of many lyrics to a song that began to take shape in her head. Her husband Mike, an accomplished local musician and songwriter himself, took those lyrics and basic ideas and brought them to life. Harmonic Dirt was born. Here in our final sound scene with Kathleen Mason of K-Maze Productions. Let's take a listen. 
Well, tell us how. This is a great story. Tell us how you started writing, Susan. Oh, goodness. Okay, so I'll be talking for a little bit longer than I'm going to tell Mike to take Mm -hmm. over. But I started uh, very late in life as far as musical endeavors go. Uh, It was about three years ago or thereabouts in February of 2016. And I had just, I just recently retired as a school teacher, as a science teacher, but at the time I was not, in the retirement was not quite there yet, and I had been feeling very stressed about having so much of my brain power being used for the science and mathy things as a junior high school, high school science teacher, and one day I came home and just said, I'm going to write a poem, I'm just going to do something artsy. And I wrote something that really looked like lyrics, showed it to Mike, and he's like, wow, I think I can do something with these. And he set it to music, and it sounded great. So I went and did that over and over many, many times. <laughs> and before you knew it, we had like we had so much stuff. We're like, we're going to write an album. We're going to do an album. I had always been involved in music um, ever since I was a teenager. I've been playing the guitar and playing in bands and stuff. And... Uh, Susan had always enjoyed music and always been a big music fan, but you know we, you know we had a few little times where we would play oh, things yes. together. Susan, all, you know, had played the guitarist when she was what maybe like yeah. twelve she, years old. Yes, or something not like very that. well. So she had Just very basic <laughs> strum strum. She had some basic knowledge, and I had written songs over the years, but at a very slow pace. You know, if I wrote like two or three songs a year, that would I would be thrilled you know and it was just a kind of a struggle for me and what it turned out was that I could crank through coming up with musical ideas no problem but I would get hung up on on the words and Susan is just like a a fountain of of words they just come yes sometimes sometimes fully formed songs sometimes just a couple of thoughts but I um, often sit down uh, when I have something coming and it just I usually just finish it all in one setting because if I have to go back to it uh, later, it rarely have I finished a song that way. It's almost every single thing we do has been done in one, one chunk burst. of time. One burst, right, one burst. <laughs> clouds from our town dirty and wet as the winter rains came down tattoos of anthracite dragged to the dim daylight I've asked you this before but I think it'd be a very cool thing to talk about on the podcast Harmonic Dirt, the name the of name. the band. Yes. Um, Susan can, can explain that I, one. Okay. She um, was the one that kind of, I wouldn't say like thought of it, but sort no. of spotted it. Spotted it. And it so occurred to her that this would be great. Yes, and I think that that's, um, with my songwriting too, I see things sometimes like words written someplace or someone says something and they cling to my brain going, ooh, that's, I got a vision of that. So back uh, several years ago, even before we started songwriting, I think, um, Mike's other band, the Bog Brothers, he had 
put together an album that was recorded in our basement and it needed some mastering work done. So a friend of ours from the band Elliot Brood from uh, near Toronto, Canada, uh, was also a, uh, a sound engineer and he did mastering. And he took care of Mike's band's album and then sent back an email that had just a description of the things he did on some of the tracks. And in, in his description, he said on this some track, whatever, he added a little harmonic dirt, blah, 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 blah. I didn't understand any of the technical stuff, but I was like, ooh, harmonic dirt, what a cool thing, you know, and I wrote that down, like, I want that. So then we ended up, when we formed the band, uh, picking that name. And another name that Mike liked the idea about, uh, we ended up writing a song with that name, so we have both of our ideas somehow embedded within our group. What would you consider your genre to be? I would describe us as either like Americana or folk rock or maybe some slash combination of those because um, our music is definitely based in kind of American mm-hmm. roots music. Yes. You know, um, folk and blues and country and bluegrass. Maybe a little bluegrass. Yes, yeah. a little bit of bluegrass. We have a banjo player, but we don't, we're not a strict bluegrass right. by any we have a little bluegrass drummer. medley that we do in our set yeah. because sometimes they think we're a bluegrass yeah. band <laughs> so that's fine i love yes. i love bluegrass but i would never i would never claim to be uh-uh. you, know, that, you know at that level of being a player but um so that's yeah that's kind of the label we we go with so where can people find you Oh, well, um, if you go to Soundgarden, you can actually find a few copies of our CD there. (laughs) (laughs) We also have our stuff, uh, you know, our album's available on Bandcamp Mm -hmm. um, if you want to order it there. Um, Our website, harmonicdirt.com, has links to all of our different social media uh, outlets. Yes, you can follow us on Spotify. Yep, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Music, all those Streaming services have the uh, the Anthracite album. Our first album is on there. And with that comes an end to the Stick to Syracuse podcast. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this is going to change over back to an all-sports format starting in mid-August. We did 23 episodes of the Stick to Syracuse podcast, and it was a thrill and a privilege to do it. In episode one, we said Stick to Syracuse would set out to see why we do what we do, eat what we eat, drink what we drink, about music, life, history, food, sports, politics, certainly snow, weather, and everything that makes Syracuse, Syracuse. I don't think we found all the answers to those questions in 23 episodes, but we found plenty. In the world of politics, Mayor Ben Walsh joined us in our very first episode, Congressman John Katko, County Executive Ryan McMahon, Dana Balter, and Joe Driscoll gave us some terrific insight into the life of public service. Media personalities and celebrities like Matt Mulcahy, Daniel Baldwin, Chris Baker, Ed and Pam Levine, Josh and Cody from the show on K-Rock told us some great stories about life in the public eye. Food and beer. Honestly, one of the reasons I did this podcast is I wanted to interview John Stage from the Dinosaur Barbecue. 
Mission accomplished, and it was a dream come true. Paul Valenti from Glazed and Confused Donuts, Tim Butler from Empire Brewing, Rockney and Kevin, my guys from Willow Rock Brewery, Matt Godard from Cafe Kubal, told us about the food and drink that truly fuels Syracuse, New York. And the music. Oh, the music. We can't thank Kathleen Mason from K-Mace Productions enough for introducing us to a wide range of musical talents in central New York, which I'm ashamed to say I didn't know a lot about before we started this podcast. But I know about them now, and I listen to them often. Bands like Root Shock, The Old Main, Todd Hoban, Sidney Irving, Corey Page, The Cadleys, Chris Merkley, and so many more. Keep rocking out there, guys. We also sadly met a young musician here in Syracuse, New York, who passed away after we talked to him. Rest in peace, Curtis Tallbucks McDowell. This podcast would not have happened without the support of my bosses here at Syracuse.com. I truly thank them for letting me explore outside my sports box a little bit. Thanks to Just Joe for our terrific theme song. Thanks to Kathleen Mason once again. Thank you to Anthony Tringali for recording our sound scene segments at Cafe Kubal Studios. And thanks to our friends at Cafe Kubal, terrific supporters of this podcast. Our biggest thanks are reserved to you for listening to this podcast, for downloading this podcast, maybe telling a friend about it, or just learning a thing or two about this town from what we discussed. We truly thank you for that, and I hope you'll come along back for the ride. We did 49 episodes of the Syracuse Sports Podcast, and starting in mid-August with episode 50... We'll be back on the field. For now, that's episode 23 and the final episode of Stick to Syracuse. My name is Brent Axe. Until next time, Oscar, maybe we'll see you back at Switzerland.